again and welcome to 1001 by 1 where we take a film out of the wonderful book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. Discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And I am Ian Woodington. Uh, and before we launch in today's episode, uh, Ian, what have you seen recently? What do you want to talk about? You know, I was uh, taking a look around uh, HBO. and As uh, you do. As you do. Yeah. There's some good stuff on there. And I kind of knew this going in. I cried my eyes out every second of the Robin Williams documentary that come inside my mind. It just tore me apart. I haven't man. seen it yet. Oh, it's I, I mean, I want to. I just haven't had. Just be prepared. Okay. The, the waterworks are going to start early, and they're just not going to stop. Yeah. Uh, it was a really well done, very comprehensive documentary, very heartfelt. Didn't feel exploitative at all. I mean, it really did a good job of covering many of the facets of his career and then delving into his personal life and... There's a really emotional interview in there with his son. I mean, it's just a really well put together, uh, very heartfelt, very endearing documentary. Just very well done. Yeah. Um, a little too much Steely Dan on the soundtrack, but I'm <laughs> going to assume that's because Robin Williams is, uh, or maybe was a Steely Dan fan. Who knows? But um, let's go with yeah. Yeah, let's go with yeah. Though I do, I will say one of my guilty pleasures is uh, "Dirty Work" by Steely Dan. So that's how I know I'm getting older and more boring and more white, probably. <laughs> Old, boring white guy listening to Jethro Tull and uh, Steely Dan. I need an intervention. I need a musical intervention. Well, hold hold on, because I think I think the film we're going to talk about is just the kind of hope that you need. But we're not quite there yet. Okay. Uh, my recommendation is a movie from a director that I'd, I'd seen a bunch of stuff before, but this was, I think the best film of his I've seen. And uh, I recently saw Caché, which is by Michael Haneke, and I might be pronouncing that wrong. I don't think you are. So and so, this is the fourth film of his I've seen, and I think it might... Caché was in the book, I think, at one point, but it's not anymore. It, that sounds right, yeah. So he's also known for funny people... or Yeah, no, funny games, which he directed, and then he also directed the Shot for Shot remake, um, the American version with Tim Roth and Naomi Watts. Do you have a preference? You've seen both, right? I've seen both. Do you have a preference? Not really, because they're pretty much the same movie. I mean, they really are. Is there no benefit to one over the other? The discrepancy I, in performances? I like Tim Roth yeah. a lot, so I, I guess it's I hard not to. One. And Naomi Watts is. It's the same director. I mean, it's it's not like we lost anything from the first one. All the intricacies of the German one is what's in the American one. Hmm. He also directed Amore, which was uh, Best Picture nominee a few years ago which is a really kind of unique look at love and um, dementia with this couple in their, in their 70s. He also directed The Piano Teacher. I don't know if you've seen that, but that movie is insane. You know, I don't think I've seen any of those films you just listed. Ooh! I know. I, funny funny Games has been on my list for a long time. But, okay, before you watch that, you've got to watch Caché. Um, this movie is so good. And the, the very basic premise is this couple... They start getting sent videotapes of somebody recording the outside of their house. And that's all that it is. It's just two-hour-long chunks of their house. And nothing happens at first. And then the recordings start to get a little more specific. It shows the the husband's house when he was a kid. And he starts thinking he might know who it is. And then yeah. it shows this hallway. And he, he ends up having to relive something from his past that he doesn't want to. And this movie just takes a huge left turn and you are just hooked and it's it's a movie that you get to the end of it and 
you're you're going okay wait what has it got one of those kind of old boy endings no no not like not quite like that but i mean as far as the shock value the shock value actually happens earlier in the movie oh interesting but you're still left at the end you're going like wait what yeah and i don't want to even say anything else because it's not so new but it's new enough and I guess unheard of enough that I don't want to ruin it for anybody. You, Ian, or anybody listening, I highly recommend this movie. And I highly recommend the movie we're going to talk about right now, which is a movie I had never even heard of until Ian recommended it. So, Ian, what are we talking about? We're talking about A Matter of Life and Death, uh, also known as Stairway to Heaven here in the States. Boo! Yeah, don't like that title. I don't like at no. all. Well, the, the reason it was changed, I- the censors at the time, you know, we were just coming out of World War II. They didn't want anything, you know, with death in the title. You know, they didn't want to bum people out any more than they already were. And granted, there is a very awesome uh, set decoration of a Stairway to Heaven in the movie. Well, and the, well, the, the Stairway to Heaven title is kind of... Uh, they they make a very deliberate point in the film of not calling it heaven. Very true. Other than the really cool little cameo of a, a very young uh, Richard Attenborough, yeah. where he says it's heaven, isn't it? But nobody nobody confirms or denies that. He just gets a, a, a sideways glance when he says it. Yeah. Um, so this film was released in uh, November of 1946. It was the first film to receive a royal command film performance, otherwise known as a royal premiere, if nobody knows what that is in the UK. Uh, usually, I think it's Leicester Square. There's a big cinema there where they do a performance that the royal family attends, and it's a big deal. All the Bond movies get one. A lot of the Disney features do as well. But yeah, it's directed by uh, the team known as The Archers, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Which, I, I'm going to stop you right there, only because, again, as somebody who kind of prides himself on doing this sort of self-inflicted film history through my own, you know, delving through books and picking movies and picking classics, never had even heard of these guys, which... But you probably heard of The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp and The Red Shoes and Black Narcissus. I guarantee you heard of those. I'd heard of The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. And the other ones from our wonderful book that we're talking about, I had heard about them, but I knew nothing about them. You know, and as as I, you know... Uh, browse through the Criterion Collection catalog. You know, I definitely names have popped up, but I knew not. I mean, I knew unfortunately nothing about them. And while we're talking Criterion, their release that just came out, I believe it was uh, August of this year. I picked that up day one because I've been waiting on pins and needles, anxiously awaiting their restoration for a film that's seventy-two years old. The color sequence, especially, are just astounding. I mean, I'm not going to say, oh, you could say this film was made yesterday, but it's definitely aged a hell of a lot better than 72 years would indicate. Sure. And just while you brought it up, too, other films by this, by these by these guys um, that are in the book, you already mentioned The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Um, a movie called I Know Where I'm Going is also in the book. Black Narcissist, The Red Shoes. And then just credited to Michael Powell, Peeping Tom. Which is the film that essentially ended his career or... You know, he was he did a film which was uh, not what they were known for. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a bit of an expose and and got him into trouble with censors and things like that. Yeah, uh, Powell actually ended up coming to the states in his later years and married Salma Schoonmaker, who most people might know as Scorsese's yep. longtime collaborator. Mm-hmm. And of course, Scorsese, huge fan of the Archers. Yep, 
really in love with their films. He's uh, he's talked many times at length about their work, and there's a great little interview with him on the criterion of this as well. We, when we talk about accolades sometimes, we tend to, because a lot of these films are American, we talk about the AFI Top 100. However, um, there's also the British Film Institute's Top 100 films, and A Matter of Life and Death is on there at number 20, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Uh, very happy to hear that. You yeah, know, it's a film that I'd say as as... A British person. It's a film that I'm fiercely proud to say is British. And damn well you should be, because oh, it's yeah, very good. It is very it's good. Very it's also good. the favorite film of. Oh, okay. If we don't have an, we you know, look, look, listen, listeners. We we want people to listen to our podcast, and we will do anything to get that. And so he means literally. Anything. I do literally mean anything. And you should know that this film is how Daniel Radcliffe, otherwise known as Harry Potter. And J.K. Rowling bonded during the filming of the movie. This is both of their favorite films. And I can't blame them. It's a really good movie. Yeah. Um, so if you like Harry Potter, then you're going to like this movie, which means you're going to like this podcast. So just that's how it works out. Yeah. That's, that's the logic of that, it. That's, that's how that works. Great. Yeah. It's got a 96% fresh. And again, the audience lines up with it pretty well as well. Uh, 93%. Uh, in my mind, it... Had the BAFTAs been around at the time, I'm sure it would have swept. I think it would have, yeah, clean house. Yeah, this film yeah. came out a little too early. The first BAFTAs were in 1949. And, That's such uh, a bummer. And they, uh, at their first ceremony, they called out films from 1947 and 1948. So unfortunately, Matter of Life and Death kind of got passed over. <sighs> uh, it was given, I'd never heard of these. There's a Danish Film Critics Association uh, called the Bodil Awards. And it was given Best uh, European Film. At, at that ceremony. Um, it was nominated at, way back when for the New York um, Film Critics' Choice. Uh, it was nom- nominated for Best yeah. Film and Best Director. It didn't win. Right. Um, but but so cool to see some love in the States. Yeah. You know. Now, we got some reviews we want to talk about. Uh, now, I have one. The I actually ha- I found the original uh, Bosley Crowther New York Times review of this what movie. What a name. I know, right? That name is incredible. How is this guy not British? Bosley Crowther. That's awesome. Yeah. And... Uh, and this film was really this film was loved when it first came out. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from it. And if you will listen now to this reviewer, you will he- you will hear that the delicate charm, the adult humor, and visual virtuosity of this Michael Powell Emmerich Pressburger film render it indisputably the best of a batch of Christmas shows. If you wished to be literal about it, you might call it a romantic fantasy with psychological tie-ins. But literally, is not the way to take this deliciously sophisticated frolic in imagination's realm. For this is a fluid contemplation of a mad's odd of a man's odd experiences in two worlds. One, the world of the living, and one, the other world of his fantasies, which in this particular instance happens to be the great beyond. And there's more before and after, but I think it's a nice little... If I could write half that good, I could die a happy man. That is some... He was a serious wordsmith. Yeah. I think, well, I mean, back then, that's, you know, it was all about that, you yeah. know, and, 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 and See, I think he's he just, does it... it. Not only has he done the film justice there, but he's just playing with language. There, oh, totally. The he describes yep. it. That's somebody who is... 100% a master of their craft. And this is somebody from, from 46. He wrote this review the day after Christmas in 1946 and, and loved it. However, there are some, I'll just call them terrorists out there who don't like this movie. Um, so there are, I forget the number, but there's, there's a certain number of reviews on Rotten Tomatoes from quote-unquote professional critics. And they're, they're all positive, save one. Written by a man named Christopher Lloyd, 
who wrote this review in November of 2010. Now, not the Christopher Lloyd that we know from Back to the Future. I certainly hope not. I hope not either, because I I like I like Doctor Emmett Brown. Yeah, me too. And Fester Adams. And I might take if this is actually Christopher Lloyd, I might take that box set off my shelf and throw it away. Oof. But I'm, I'm going to say that it's not. That's not. It's, yeah, it's yeah. not okay. Doctor Emmett Brown. I'm going to I'm going to say it's a different Christopher Lloyd. So starting off, he says the metaphysics the metaphysics of the story are beyond silly. It's a fantasy film, man. Would you say that the metaphysics of the Lord of the Rings are what? What do you want? I, yeah. What I really couldn't stand, this is is him speaking, what I really couldn't stand, though, was the mawkish idea that two people can fall irrevocably in love in a matter of hours, and that this would be the entire basis upon which Peter's case stands. He can't leave Earth because he loves a woman? What about the millions of women and men who lost their true loves during the war? Don't they get an appeal? Well, it's not a movie about them. It's a movie about these two people. You're being very nitpicky there. His final paragraph, although it's undeniably a great-looking film, I found... A matter of life and death to be too harebrained to take seriously as a piece of important cinema. I was astonished to learn via the film's Wikipedia page that it is named the second most important film, the second most important British film ever in a 2004 magazine survey of critics. All I can say is that they must have suffered a conk on the head, resulting in overly ambitious delusions. That's some cynical shit, man. Yeah. No, and I get it. It's I, I reviewed films for a while myself on uh, Skew and Reviewed. And it's I will it is more fun to write negative criticism than it is to write positive criticism. It's just more fun. But this is just pure unadulterated cynicism. Well, and let's we'll come back to this because uh, we've sort of skirted around what the movie is about. So basically, we have a Royal Air Force pilot, uh, Peter, played by David Niven. Niven. David Niven. Niven. Who most um, people may know from Pink Panther. He's definitely got a very recognizable face. Oh, a very recognizable jaw. And that mustache. Yeah. And he is in a plane that's been shot at and is about to go down. He actually has a, a co-pilot who's already dead in the cockpit with him. And he gets on the radio and he talks to June, played by Kim Hunter, basically saying that he's going to go down. And he's taking the last minutes of his life to talk to this charming American woman. And they really connect. She tries to talk them not out of jumping and and you know just say no you can make it you can make it you sure you can't do this and they have this lovely conversation and we get that the plane's going down cut to his co-pilot is in heaven we assume like ian said it's never really explained but you get that it's in heaven and he's waiting for his friend who doesn't show up cut to a lush technicolor landscape which is earth and i guess before i go too much further we should say that all the stuff that takes place on Earth is in this wonderfully rich, luscious Technicolor. And it's the early days of Technicolor, too. And all the heaven stuff is in black and white, which we'll get to later. So Peter washes up on shore. He thinks he's in heaven. He sees a kid. He asks, Where's am I, where am I at? He, goes, he, says, he says that he's on this specific beach, a beach that he happens to remember talking to this woman about. And June happens to be riding her bike as he's there. And they see each other, and they recognize the voice, and they fall in love. And that's a problem because this French guy who... Is a conductor. So in this afterlife, they have people that conduct you from this life to the next. And he missed Peter. He was supposed to account for him coming into heaven, and he didn't. And so he has to go down to earth to get him. But, however, in the, what is it, I think, nine hours... That he, the extra nine hours that he's been allotted, he fell in love, and he believes... Oh, it's a, it's, uh, it's a little more. It's almost okay. a full day. It's okay. like 21 or something. Sure. Um, and uh, 
But Peter believes that because he's fallen in love in the time that he was, the extra time he had, that he shouldn't have to go. And so thus begins this appeal process with heaven, uh, whether or not he should actually be taken up to heaven or be given a chance down on earth. And that gets us also to the character of Frank, who is a doctor that knows June, who is a psychiatrist. He deals in um, uh, like brain brain tumors yeah. and is like a, uh, you you get the feeling he's a surgeon of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and just so and just kind of finish out the basic plot. So he's given a chance to appeal. Frank uh, dies before um, the appeal takes place, and because he's up in heaven, Frank becomes Peter's. I don't say attorney, but his. Um, his, his counsel for the defense. His counsel, yes. And they basically debate whether or not Peter should be given a chance to live on Earth or have to go up into heaven. And ultimately, because it's the story that it is, love rules all, Peter gets to uh, stay with June. And that's ultimately the end of the movie. That's the really quick summation of it. And I intentionally wanted to not go into detail because we'll talk about right now the things that we loved most about this movie so ian what stands out to you well i I have a really emotional connection to this film i a lot of the older classic films i found were because i i lived with my my grandmother in england when we were when i was much younger and so she taught me all about clark gable and david niven and uh you know we watched uh, a lot of stuff like ben hur together and this was one of them now so you mentioned so. What was your familiarity with this movie before? Because this was this was my first time. It's about my fourth time seeing okay. it, so I, I hadn't seen it a ton. But you know, the, I have I have the recollections of, of watching it with her, and she would. My grandfather was a, a serviceman, and she would tell me these these stories about him. And, and so, firstly, we should preface that the whole point of this film was to bridge tensions between the UK and the United States. Yes, because of the sentiment that my grandmother echoed to me about what the English serviceman used to say about the Americans is that they were overpaid, oversexed, and over here. <laughs> and she, isn't that good? That's good. Um, and she would tell me stories about how much, now, I don't want anybody to think poorly of my, my grandfather because he was a very good person, but back in these days, hated Americans, couldn't stand them because everything, the way she, the way she told me the stories that he told her, Everything had to be a competition. So, say for example, they'd be all sit, all the servicemen, the 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 U.S. and the and the and the U.K. servicemen would be sitting together in the mess halls, and everything had to be a competition. Like they'd be sitting there eating their breakfast, and they'd have the fried tomatoes, and they'd be like, "You call that a tomato? We've got tomatoes four times the size." And everything had to be, everything's bigger and louder and larger in the states. And can can just, I ask you a question? Yeah. Has has much changed? No. Okay. Absolutely. I agree. Just keep going. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was the whole point of this film is to kind of bridge those tensions and and to sh- and to sort of to show the camaraderie and to you know show that hey you know we we went through something together and of course the movie's message of, of love love conquers all kind of thing so yeah we we watched a, a load of classic films together and this is is one that was like I said really important to me growing up is one that she had shown me that's that's great that you say that because I watched this movie and I, I I unfortunately I watched this by myself. And I got done, and my first two thoughts I had were, I cannot wait to watch this again with my wife. I yeah. can't wait. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And then my second thought was, is I can't wait until my oldest daughter, Stella, is maybe three or four years older, t- 
to, to show this to her. Yeah, because right now, she, a lot of it would probably be lost on her, she I would imagine. She would probably love the color yeah. and, and the characters, but she might not totally grasp everything. But in a couple of years, especially, like, you know, what was that, like, trial kind of scene about? What was that about? And to just kind of sit down and go... You know, we had all these. I, I love when the jury changes. By the way, that I, that's so good. That's amazing. And everybody and look at all these Americans who all look different. What's that about? I'm like, yeah, yeah that's like yeah. reinforcing. And this is being made by British people trying yeah. to reinforce that. Hey, no, you really are the melting pot of the world. Yeah. Right. Yep. And it, that's that's one of the best parts of the movie. And it's, I mean, yes, it's it's cheesy and it's wonderful and it's romantic. And within all of this, yeah, there's this great. I, I, I know it's not really a trial, but I think it's the only way I can think about it. The, the trial well, scene in heaven is wonderful. Well, it's the British doctor sparring with, they the, call it out very, very briefly that he was the first, one of the first men killed in the American Revolution. So obviously he has a hatred. He's a boss. He's from Boston. Yeah. And he's got this hatred of, you know, British people. And he calls out, you know, the fact that everywhere the Brits go, suffering you know, comes with us and things like that. And that's why the jury is made up of such a diverse, the original jury is made up of such a diverse amount of people and everywhere that they are from is somewhere where the, the English have been and have you know, caused chaos yeah. through their, our imperialistic nature. But then, like you say, the great thing is when the jury changes, it's still an ethnically diverse. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. such a, it's such a tongue in cheek. Re, it's, it's a great moment of reinforcement of that wonderful idea that America is, it is a great nation because it's a nation made up of so many great peoples. Yeah. Yeah. And just the simple idea that heaven is in black and white and earth is in color. And and the, the fact that time stops whenever the conductor is well, around. Well, that, okay. That, so that's a totally separate thing. I think the time stopping is great. Um, and considering this is 1946, I had something that irritated me. My first note on the IMDb FAQs. Somebody asked, or enough people asked this question to where it is actually on the frequently asked questions page. Did they use CGI? It's 1946. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitively answer that for you now. No, they did not use CGI. Everything you see in this film is done for real. That staircase, yeah, is incredible. The I production mean, design of this movie is fantastic. Yeah, it's. I mean, you can't say no. Operation Ethel is what they call the stairway, is what she was dubbed by the engineers that nice. made her. Uh, nice. She weighed 3,000 pounds, and uh, it, it was 100, to get a little more useless trivia, it was 106 steps, and it took them three months to make it. I'm glad they did. And it was loud as hell. Oh, I'm sure. So all of that, all of the voices are done. And you know what I love I, the, about that stairway sequence I also love is where the conductor is kind of misleading David a little bit. Like, he doesn't realize the staircase is moving. Kind of, or he doesn't realize that that's the point of what he's doing is he's, the conductor's trying to lead him up there. Yeah. And they're, they've got all the great statues of all the people that reside in the afterlife. That he could, Socrates, yeah, people right. that you could choose from. And he's yeah. like, no, it needs to be somebody English. And I, you could say this is a bit of, you know, lazy writing on their part, maybe. The, uh, the doctor character we mentioned earlier does die right at a very crucial moment so that he can become, you know, Peter's defense. Yeah, it's it's... It's a little lazy, but it's also is he's on his way to do something. Um, he, well, he's on his way to the hospital. Yes, and he oh, gets caught in the rainstorm. Yes, so it's it's lazy in a way, but it's also at least it makes sense in terms of the story. It's not just a random bike right. ride that exactly. He, yeah. And so now you have a much more emotional attachment when you do get to that that trial scene later on, and you get to have the the Americans and the British sparring back and forth. I love the scene with the radios where the 
guy from Boston produces a radio that's playing that endlessly boring cricket, and then he, the the, the British doctor, produces the radio that's playing the the swing music. Yeah. And he's, uh, what does he say? He says something like, I, I have no idea what he's saying. And uh, the doctor, very tongue-in-cheek, says, oh, neither do I. So, I mean, so yeah, you've got the great, you've got the great stuff going on in that trial scene. You've got the, the juxtaposition of Earth being in color and this idea that, no, this is where, this is the lovely place. And not that heaven isn't, but, you know, to appreciate life, to appreciate what you have, to be in the moment. And, and this, is, this is where the life is being lived, you know. This is what we should be striving for is the here and the now. And then, yeah, you get the, the great production design. You get the, the stillness, which is awesome. I yeah. loved that. Even the, uh, I would, I, I wouldn't call it CG, but the the opening, the like explanation of the of the planets. Yeah, that was that's I, really cool. It was really cool. Yeah. I, I again, I, I'm totally, utterly, well, utterly smitten with this movie. Well, there's that there's that very tongue in cheek thing where they, uh, well, yeah, no, it's it's a great opening the, the opening scroll as well during that where they, uh, which ultimately will leave the decision up to you whether what he's going through is fantasy or whether it is in fact real sure uh where they they make reference to uh other worlds known or unknown you know they, they don't mean to cause offense by by calling it what it is it's a great choice not to call it heaven so that you can be inclusive of all walks of life yeah. all creeds all religions i mean the film did come under fire a little bit for being allied propaganda because uh no germans Italians or Japanese are apparently represented in the afterlife. Which, and I read that too, and my immediate thought was, yeah, nobody was clamoring for any of those countries a year after World War II. Yeah, come on. I mean, I'm nobody's going to be like, you look, know, I've got celebrating I'm, the Axis. I'm fairly certain that in my ancestry, I, I have German and Italian down the line. I'm, I'm almost positive of it. But I have no problem saying that in 1946, we we didn't care too much about Germans or Italians. Yeah, I wouldn't be too proud, right? Okay, so yeah, I get it. There's a there's also a really lovely moment in um, the uh, the plane scene where at the beginning where he's going down, where he's talking about you know I hope there are I hope there are um, wings. I'm excited to get my my wings, and I hope they they haven't replaced them with props. You know, like the propellers. I mean, that's that's a, a really nice line that I liked, and then the. Um, Moving on to the beach scene, another piece of useless trivia. That scene was actually shot on the last day of World War II. That's Victory Over Japan Day. Oh, great. Yeah. I didn't know that. And uh, that's such a great scene, too, where they couldn't quite get the effect they wanted, and they couldn't, like, recreate the fog. So Jack Cardiff, who's the, the cinematographer, and he is really the man to to congratulate for the film looking as good as it does. He is an astounding cinematographer. It's so good. He... he he fogged up the lens by breathing on it and then allowed his breath to evaporate. Yes. And that's I, yep. such a great little thing. Like, who would have thought of that? Like, we can't do the fog. What are we going to do? I'll just breathe on the lens. That's great. That's inspired. Yeah. I, I also love when, like, we first kind of see heaven or, you know, whatever you want to call it. When you first see it, all the soldiers are coming in. Are you going to talk about the way that the Americans run directly to the Coke machine? I know, and- the Coke machine, too. And also, what does one of them say? Um... They ask, "Do you have a USO show here?" And the angel says, "No, we'll stay." Yeah, I love that. Like yeah. just like the know. arrogance there. Isn't it's just great? so there's these great little little things in that, there that I just find the thing, so. Is you is you might because based on a scene like that, you might think that there is an anti anti American sentiment about the film, but there really isn't. Especially when you get into the trial scene where you have the the man from Boston saying, "America is the only place where man is full grown." And again, you might think that's a 
an arrogant sentiment, but it's really not because you think about what America was founded on, you know, the founding principles and, and what the founding fathers did to set up this, this country away from the tyranny of old world Europe kind yeah. of thing. Like to say that America is the only place where man is full grown, I think that's a sentiment that really needs to be echoed and acknowledged today where I don't want it, this podcast to turn political at all, but that's a sentiment that really needs to be thought about. Do you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a something that could reinvigorate this country and bring pride back to it. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, like I said, I don't want to go on a political tangent. No, 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 that's no, not I, what we're here to do. Yeah, yeah, I get you. But no, but I mean, I you know, I agree. I agree. Yeah, that the, the UK US stuff is 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 great. I do have a, it's so funny. In, in a movie that it's and I get that it's a fantasy movie, so this is kind of a, a weird thing to nitpick, but that plane is up in the air a really long time before apparently it's going to come crashing down. That conversation between Peter and June is it's pretty lengthy. And it seems like that plane is pretty much destroyed. Yeah, it's it's a little it's a little overdone, but yeah, I guess I need you need so really, I mean, there's there's flames coming out of it and stuff like oh, that. Oh sure, I mean, no, and I it's it's and I don't. You need the visual representation that it's actually going down. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, get, see, I see the, the it's nitpicker. A, it's there. such a small thing. I, it, it doesn't ruin anything. Well, for and me it's at all. based on a real incident. There was an RAF pilot that fell out of a plane. Yeah, I was in. A, I, I did, over the I channel did. and survived. And the, the the film really does does its best to really ground itself in reality, def- despite the fantasy element. I mean the. They took a lot away from a book called A Journey Around My Skull by the Hungarian author, uh, whose name, again, like we did in the Stalker podcast, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce his name for fear of butchering Ooh, yeah. the pronunciation. It looks like his last name is Corinthi? Yes. And it's about his experiences with a with a brain tumor and eventually going through the brain surgery. I mean, they do... It's a really odd comparison, and just kind of go with me on it. They do what The Exorcist did a few years later. Well, I... Uh, a few decades later, rather, where they tried to eliminate every possibility so that you genuinely believe the demonic possession in the same way this film, where you have a legitimate brain doctor come in and, you know, they're discussing the ideas of surgery and they're discussing the idea of playing along with his fantasy and they deal with the idea of, oh, during the hallucinations, he, he smells fried onions, which yeah. is really something that happens. So they really do try to, you know do the trial and error thing not not as much as they could do yeah but they certainly try and help you suspend the disbelief and it goes it does to an extent go out of its way to do that oh i i mean i I totally agree and i think what's great about that is that frank the, the doctor doesn't treat peter like he's crazy right you know which which i think it that helps ground us in reality because i mean it could easily be Okay, sure. Yeah. And then we, we start to lose credibility for the whole thing. We start to think, oh, maybe this is just in his head. Yeah, he and is the he is the uh, the underappreciated hero. That that actor, um, uh, Roger Livesey. Yeah. He is the the uh, silent hero of that film and his performance. Oh, he's he's great up there in the in the trial scene. I mean, he's yeah. great in, in the, the scenes the on thing. Earth too. But I yeah, he's what he does to ground the film. Yeah. is really underappreciated. It's yeah, he's great. And uh, the the Raymond Massey character, who many people might know him for the the biggest thing he did in America was uh, East of Eden. Uh, I think he played the dad in that or something like that. I haven't seen East of Eden, but uh, that's the thing he's most famous for. His Bostonian, the the guy up there on the other side of the trial, like every moment of them sparring is just fantastic. The way that scene is written, it really feels like two guys who are masters of their craft really just playing. Well, and you know, We've talked about the the production design. We've talked about 
The trial. The trial, yeah. And 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 we kind of be, kind of beating around the bush a little bit, but this is a great script. I think it's really witty. It's it's kind of got that noir quickness, but obviously without the the noir darkness. Right. Like I love it's oh, the, the witty is... pitter patter is yeah. just great. You know, I just said I, I think the the plane not crashing sooner seemed unrealistic, but I'm not bothered by it because I'm so charmed by the the dialogue between June and Peter in this yeah. moment. It's it's just great. Well, and you need you need the length there to kind of build the just to build the relationship. Oh, totally. So that when the they see each other, yeah. and that is such a slick moment where she goes to drop the bike and he catches it and doesn't break eye contact. It's like, that is a, that's a smooth move, sir. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I would have fallen head over heels in love with David Niven had, it, had that happened between us. The other, the other interesting, interesting thing this movie brings up, right, right towards the end, because basically Peter has to prove that June truly loves him in order to sort of show that, that he has fallen in love and basically can, can stay on Earth. Oh, I love that line where he's oh she she truly where she steps onto the stairway to give herself up. And yeah, he, he the the Bostonian gives in. He's like he she truly does love him. The yeah. way he delivers that line is fantastic. And it's this idea that, and and obviously there's this, there's like the trying to show the proof of the tear. The tear is the evidence yeah. that they use, and then they do this moment. Well, would you would you trade places and and all this thing? But it, it really made me ask this question of of how can you prove that you love someone? What I found interesting was that trying to prove that you love someone can't be relegated to a tear. Yeah, no, you or, can't quantify it. Or even just say, you know, I, I take my my I would take my my wife's place, you know, or my partner's place, so that they could live. It it's it's impossible. And kind of going back to what it, I think it gets mentioned earlier in the movie is you you couldn't fall in love with somebody that quick. Well, who's to say that? Exactly. That's the whole point the movie tries to make, and that's it's it's such a struggle. I, they do a, like you said, the script is fantastic because it deals with things like that. Yeah, and it, it it's it's not judgmental about it at all. And in this and in this fantasy, you know, it's fantasy movie. We're dealing about you know it's post World War Two. It's UK US relations. It's it's tackling this idea of love. It's larger than the sum of its parts. It really is, and yet. It totally works. Yeah. It all works together to put forth this this great, great movie tackling big issues and yet as charming as all hell. Yeah. And it moves at such a clip. I'm, I, yeah. I'm disappointed when it's over. I, You know what? I was too. I Like this could keep going for another 20 minutes or so and I'd be happy as Larry. Yeah. I don't know if you could have added 20 minutes like, to the end, but like 20 no. more minutes of stuff just in the middle. Because even like... Well, like you say, with the charm, David Niven, you could just film him doing his thing. He's so endlessly charming. Well, and where are they? They're and at the, like that. the banter with the conductor as well, the first time that they meet. Okay. It's like, I, what, ab- what about the French salad? French conductor. What about the salad you got me into? That line is fantastic. I don't like that French conductor. No? No. Well, he's supposed to be a bit pompous. I mean, and they well, make no, reference to the... And that's probably what I mean is is he's, he's irritating as a character, yeah. which I think is part of that very foppish French thing. Well, and there's the, there's the end. Yeah. You get a bit of the British's anti-French sort of feelings there yeah. and stuff like that. But I, I do love the detail of the scarf around his neck because he mentions that he was that's in the right. French revolution. So yep. clearly he had his head cut off. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really nice little touch for, especially for a film as old as it is when censorship was so rampant. We mentioned that it was the advent of Technicolor. There's a, a line that was actually, they redubbed. Because when he first comes down and that transition to color, which is better than anything in The Wizard of Oz, 
you know, the way the, the flower changes color is this is the first thing that happens, and then it expands out from that. Yeah. And he, uh, the original line was, he says, uh, you're so starved for color up there. Well, because Technicolor, they changed the line to, you're so starved for Technicolor up there. You know, it was a little throw out to the that, new technology. Which was good. Which yeah. was good. I'm glad they did that. And, like, it's, and obviously, like, this movie really revolves around, obviously, Peter and, and June. But, like, while they're at the, the, is it like just the, the, the hospital or like that, they're in that, with, you know, where, where June introduces oh, the scene where they're on the, we're on the base and they're playing chess. Yes. Yes. Like, there's that group of people trying to, they're putting on a Midsummer Night's Dream and they're not spelling it right. They're spelling yeah. Shakespeare wrong. Again, which, is, which you might think is, no, this, they we're building a kind of, enduring there's something enduring about the americans being over here do you know what i mean because yeah. that, that's what they're trying to do is hey we're not trying to call out any flaws you have we're do it's it's endearing oh, yeah there's just so many great moments in this yeah i it's so funny i i'm so happy that you're gonna be you're gonna be picking it up in the next criterion sale, I, I hope absolutely it's so good and the commentary on there is fantastic my, as well. my sort of my ground my barnes and noble half price you know criterion sale goes on i, I say okay i'm gonna get five Five, and because they're expensive, but they're the quality is awesome. The supplemental materials, well, and that's are, a nice round hundred bucks as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I always, but I always think about you know what's going to be in this next batch that I get. I always think about it, and without a doubt, a matter of life and death is going to be in there. And I, I, I may have mentioned the restoration already, but it is the black and white sequences don't pop quite as well as they could maybe, but the color stuff is astounding. And I'm just going to keep flogging that horse because I really want Criterion sponsorship. Oh, man. <laughs> Wouldn't that God, be nice? please? Yeah. Please. Yeah. Do we have any friends out there? Criterion, come on. Come on. We're gonna we're plugging you a lot. Yeah. And um, we're going to keep doing it. Oh, we will. We will. That's one of our things. If it's a Criterion that we're talking about. Because we had, we had Stalker, which is a Criterion, and now we've had this. Well, Badlands, too. At Badlands, that's right. Yeah. Um, which your restorations on all of them were incredible. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. So send us free shit. Yeah, please. It's funny because I've, I've, a lot of the movies we've talked about so far, this is our seventh, this is our seventh podcast and hadn't seen Badlands, hadn't seen Stalker, and I really hadn't seen Halloween from start to finish. So really I'm in a, I'm in a position here where these are all really new to me. And I got to say, of, of the movies I've been introduced to because of this podcast, this is, by and large, the one I'm the most excited about. That's awesome. And our favorite films fluctuate from time to time. And when I say, you know, my personal top 100, I don't know what that is. I don't have it written down. You know, I know vaguely what's in there, but I don't totally know. Yeah. I can say with almost certainty that this one has probably cracked that top 100. I'm constantly looking for movies to get me excited to get me you know for whether it's because it made me cry a lot or because it made me laugh a lot or just gave me joy and this movie that's really what it does this movie makes me really happy when i watched it even just talking about it it's so tongue-in-cheek it. yeah it's so joyful it's just that's why i going back to that how can you be that cynical man to the, the review that i mentioned by exactly yeah, yeah. and so i mean i guess there are there are I don't. I'm not on Twitter, but like the Twitter's trolls. There are people who leave just negative comments to do it to be negative. But like somebody took a time to write a review of this movie, and I, I think totally missed what it was going for. Absolutely. And they they to me they certainly missed, or or just didn't know out of just sheer ignorance and not doing the research. Didn't know why the film was made. 
it seems to me that that's very apparent. And yeah. it, it's, it's important to, as we go through the book and we do these films, it's important to look at the time and the place and for maybe even what purpose they were made. Sure. And, you know, that's the thing about this book, too, you know, that, I, you know, we'll take a, just a, a second here to talk about that. The book is called A Thousand One Movies You Must See Before You Die. But it's not a thousand one movies that were made between 1990 and now, and they're all American, right? This is not going to be a book full of Tom Cruise, Will Ferrell, Nicole Kidman movies, right? This is a movie that dates back all the way to, to I think, to 1915 is the earliest in here. Maybe no, even, even further. It goes all the way back. I think the first film was 1902. So there you go. It, from from all the way, from basically to the turn of the last century to now, and not only that, but these films come from all over the place. I think what's great about this book and hopefully great about this podcast is that we're going to be sharing movies with you that are old and aren't that aren't American films and you need to know that these films are exist. You know, America doesn't exist in a vacuum even though sometimes I think we like to think that. That's yeah. not the case. And if that was the case, you'd miss out on this movie, which is a wonderful wonderful movie and I think you'd really treat it to yourself to see this yeah and now I'm going to advocate something that might not be popular and it might not be shared by you I think I don't there are very I can name probably on one hand the films that I would advocate a remake for I think this film is a, a prime example of something that can and maybe should be remade to bring it back into these these themes back into you know the public eye i in my head i envision going even further with bridging the gaps i mean i would love to see this film made say in the middle east and dealing with you know connecting you know jews and muslims and doing something like that you know what i mean i don't want to go on like this huge global scale and trying to say oh a remake of this film could you know cure some ales or whatever like that but it certainly is a film that thematically deals with bridging cultural gaps and that's something that we don't have enough of i no, i agree I, I you know i wonder too if some of the cynicism that that the reviewer had isn't the problem with why it's not being remade now is because it's easy to look at this film and go oh this was made just right after world war ii it's got a very i don't want to say old-timey but a, a sentiment of years gone by you know oh what a wonderful time that, you know, we just come out of the war, we'd won. Yeah. What an inspiring movie. It makes me feel good. And that's not really where we are at the moment. Which and is why I would advocate a remake that deals with, not necessarily a direct remake, but something that explores these same themes. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that would be well worth somebody, a production company, to put, to put together and make it. Yeah. And, if, and if not, at the very least, watch the movie. I don't think I need to ask this, but Ian... Do you think a matter of life and death should be in the book? Yes. Yeah, I absolutely do too. God, if you were listening to this and you couldn't put that together, you're, you're kind of an idiot. No. But you're not an idiot because you're listening to us and we want to know what you think. So please find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Try not to be cynical about it. Try and find some some hope and joy in this thing. Exactly. Because it's rife with it. We want to know what you think. So uh, go ahead and find us. Leave us some comments. You can... Um, Subscribe to us on Google Play. You can listen to us on Spotify. You can subscribe on iTunes. iTunes is huge. Please give us a review. Rate us. It's big. It's a big deal. We want to keep doing this. We've got, what, 
900 and something movies left. Yeah, we we got a long way to go. So we're not going anywhere yeah. anytime soon. We and got please some... let us know if there's something in the book that you love that you think that we need to, to do an episode on. Let us know. Yeah, and we got some, some great episodes coming up. We're going to get more interactive with you. More details on that later. Until then, I am Adam. I am Ian. And we will see you next week. Bye.